All right. Great to see you guys today. Hope you had a good week this week and uh, excited to, to be good to pick up our uh, series in his story. We're zeroing down near the last few hours of Jesus's earthly life. We're going to be in Luke chapter 23 today. Luke chapter 23 and a few other places we're going to be visiting, but if you have your device or have, however you have your Bible in a moment, the ushers are going to come back and offer a Bible if you'd like to use one today. Uh, while they're doing that, let me remind you today, after this service, we're going to be hosting our Get in the Game series of classes. That's our 101 class we call Joining the Team. I teach that. Uh, for those of you that are newer to North Shore and want to make that connection, uh, that'll be right after the service. Uh, we'll provide lunch for you. If you'll just go down uh, to the building behind here, we call it the pavilion. You'll see a bunch of great folks there that are ready to host you, and we've got uh, lunch. And then we'll go right into our, game, uh, our, our Get in the Game classes. Uh, we'll be done around 3 o'clock or so. That's the plan. And we have the 201 class, which is the discipleship process, if you've not taken that. And then I mentioned the Discover Your Ministry class. If you've never uh, walked through just a spiritual gifts inventory and find out how God has uh, equipped you for service and ministry, uh, it's a class that one of our elders, John Paxson, teaches, and you are welcome to that as well. It's not too late to sign up afterwards out at the Connection Central, but we'd love to host you this afternoon for that, okay? Well, we've got a couple of those left before we uh, launch into summer, so uh, hopefully you can take advantage of it. Today, uh, we... We are picking up uh, the uh, 12th chapter of our His Story. If you've been with us the past weeks and been walking through this, this is a collection of kind of synchronized stories through the Gospels, all four Gospels put together chronologically. They've been laid out, and so we kind of tie these stories together with one common thread. And I think about today, as we're getting near the last hours of Jesus' earthly life, There's a lot of events that history records, a lot of important things that have happened over the years and over the millennia. But I have to tell you that what we're studying and what we're looking at today, in my opinion, is the most important event in all history. Because there's only only one Savior that has done what he did so that we could be reunited with God Almighty. A lot of other stories swirling out there, a lot of great things that have happened over the time. But this one is set apart. And uh, I'm going to take you today to four distinct places, okay? And we are going to travel there. We're going to experience that, hopefully learn some some things and apply some things to our own hearts and lives. But I want to kind of fast forward as we just launched today to one of those moments. It's before Pilate, the governor uh, of the Romans that happened to be situated there in Jerusalem. Jesus is taken before him, and the accusations have come that, that he's a king and that he's going to threaten Rome somehow. Well, Pilate takes him into his own private quarters and begins to interrogate him, if you will, interview him personally. And he basically looks at him and he says, so, are you a king? And Jesus said, well, are you coming up and saying that, or is it because they've said this? And he said, but it is for that reason that I came to testify to the truth. He said, anyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. This is Jesus speaking. And Pilate, I can just picture him almost gazing off into the distance, and he says, what is truth? What is truth? Today, in the next few minutes, I think as we walk through this together, we're going to discover what the the real truth is all about who Jesus Christ is. If you came in this morning and don't know that Jesus, my prayer is that before this day is out, 
that you will invite him to be your truth, to come into your own heart and to experience that personally that he, he offers to you. So let's pray to that end and just commit these next few minutes to him, okay? Lord, every time we come together, it's with anticipation and expectation of what you're gonna say to us, and today's no different. Your word says wherever two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in our midst. And Jesus, you are here right now. We know that. We love you, we worship you, we, we love your presence, and we love that you have even prepared us for times like this when the Holy Spirit is going to instruct us into all truth, gonna guide us that direction. And so I pray that he would be free to do that, that there won't be any obstacles or any restriction to us coming to the full realization of everything that you have for us in this hour. And I pray especially, Lord, for hearts that have walked through these doors, maybe with a big question mark about who you are, what you've done, what you could do for them. And maybe those answers could be uh, coming to even today as they open their heart up to you. So we trust you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> you got some notes on your way in. And uh, I wanted to take you to Luke, Luke 23 and walk, walk you through some of these places. Last week we left you at the upper room. If you recall, we were, uh, we were with the disciples in that moment on that Thursday night of that week where he shared this dinner, this meal, it was a feast, really, okay? It wasn't a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It was a feast, and <coughs> it was quite a dinner that they had prepared. And now they came to the end of that time and said they sang a song, and they got up and they left that room. Let me take you there just to help you kind of visualize where we're going about Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. This picture shows Gethsemane up in the top right, but they were down here in the bottom left at the upper room, that area of Jerusalem is Mount Zion, okay? It's one of the highest points of, of that area. Uh, the highest point, I believe, is where the Temple Mount is, but you, you can see that that's kind of, there's a valley between there and the lower city. That's where they would have shared likely the, the, uh, the Last Supper together. And when they got up from there, they went down through the valley, through the lower city. There's actually steps that will go down, and then through the Kidron Valley, a trail up to the Garden of Gethsemane, which you see uh, at the top right uh, of that. That is where the road that would have come from Bethany where he went in and out of the city I mentioned uh, each, each evening he would go to his friends Mary and Martha and Lazarus that lived in Bethany just over that hill. Well this garden of Gethsemane was one of his favorite places. And there's, I think there's a good reason for that. And if you're, if you're looking at your notes, this, this is where he went often for times of prayer. So Gethsemane is a place of prayer for the Lord, for his disciples. Uh, I think there's several reasons why he loved this place. One of them was the solitude that he experienced there. It was away from the hustle and the bustle of the city, and he, uh, the proximity of Garden of Gethsemane on the side of the Mount of Olives, he would look over Jerusalem in fact, the trailer that we've been watching each week as it started the series, the picture of the, the, the walls and the golden dome in the back, that's taken from the Mount of Olives. So that, that would kind of be the, 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 the panoramic view that Jesus would have had as he prayed over the city from, from that region. It's a, it was a quiet place, and I think there's something to learn about that. Even Jesus, when he was asked to teach us how to pray, one of the points he made to his disciples is find a quiet place. He called it your secret place, a closet, a prayer closet, if you will. Go, go in that, 
that quiet place. Now, why would he tell us to do that? Could it be that he knew that we would have distractions? Can anybody identify with that when it comes to prayer? That uh, sometimes you get into, uh, you know, in, into that mode, and one thing's going to hit you here, one thing's going to hit you there, and all of a sudden you're you're off on a trail that you never intended. You know, one of the things I find out about that place literally today, Gethsemane, it's one of the uh, most popular sites where where travelers from around the world will gather. There's more buses in front of the church at Gethsemane than just about any single place when you go there. And when we take groups there, we, we now, in the last couple of trips, have, have been able to secure across the street a garden, an olive grove kind of thing, but it's, it's marked off by walls. And when you get inside and you close the door behind you, it is amazing the solitude that you feel in that place. Even with all the traffic and the horns and the buses and the people that are outside, and we take our group and, and we just allow about an hour for you to just to, to meditate and just to, to experience, I think, what Jesus even and his disciples experienced. It's pretty cool. I want to share, last, last week we opened up this trip for next year, February of 2019. Uh, I was kind of surprised, but uh, we have over 70 people have already registered. I've, only, I've always reserved these trips to one bus, and we just made a decision this week to add a second bus. We had to because of the registrants. And I want you to know that, that, um, that we've, we've got a few more, or, more spaces to fill the second bus. And if you'd like to join us, there's uh, information out in the lobby if you weren't here last week, uh, brochures, things like that about the trip. I, I, I've hesitated saying this, you know, but the reality is this will probably be the last trip that I lead personally. Um, and so I don't know, I mentioned it to the group last week, and so I don't know if that was a factor, but I didn't want to make it a factor because Chances are we'll, we'll continue to offer that here at North Shore. But um, uh, anyway, I just want to be, you guys to be aware. Not If you've always thought or dreamed about that, I, I, it's worth it. It's worth the sacrifice for experiences just like that. I mean, that's just every day you have those four or five or six experiences like, wow, this is, this is where he was or this is where it happened. And, um, and it really will be transforming. So join us if you can. Jesus took his disciples there, and, and he said, you know, you guys stay here. He took his three, Peter, James, and John, with him a little farther than the other eight. And, and he goes off, and he begins to pray, and his prayers are more intense than we ever read about. I mean, so intense, friends, that, that the capillaries in his forehead were bursting, and blood was, was mixed with his sweat, and it looked like he was sweating drops of blood. That's intense. And when I think of it, it not only was a place of solitude, it was a place where Jesus surrendered himself to the Father. We read uh, that phrase that we're so familiar with where he says, Father, if, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Sometimes when we read this, we might think that Jesus is trying to talk God out of the plan, right? Like, like to avoid the cross. I don't, I don't read it that way. What I see here is probably one of the clearest pictures of Jesus in his humanity, just like us. When we know God is calling us to this, we know that this is what God's will is, but we're trying to align ourselves with what the heart of the Father is, right? And this is what's happening in prayer. He's aligning himself with the will of God that he knows to be true. And that's why when he comes to the place of surrender, he says, not my will, but, but yours be done. 
Friends, I tell you, when you pray, don't hesitate to let your desires be known to God. He's the one who made you. In fact, he's the one who put those desires in your heart. He's the one who put them there. And so share those with him, but also realize that there are times when our desires have to be shaped and formed to, to fit what the will of God is, and ultimately this prayer of surrender or submission is where Jesus lands. Nevertheless, your will be done. Now, something interesting happens. Do you notice, as intense as this is, that verse 43, if you're looking at Luke 22, uh, verse 43, it says, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. It was a place of strengthening for our Lord Jesus. And that's what the prayer was really all about. And we, when he went into the garden, um, he went into with a deep, sorrowful heart. But when he came out, he came out with a heart of resolve. He said, okay, now's the time. This is what, what we need to do. Come on, let's go. Time has come. And when we go into prayer, we hope and pray that's what happens to us is we're strengthened by the Lord. I don't know what your prayer, prayer life is like or how you respond when you take your need to the Lord and, and present it and, and, and how your dialogue works with God. But I read something once that, that kind of was helpful to me and it, uh, it kind of brought some clarity. I pass it on uh, to you. And it, it was simply this, is that when our request is wrong, God says no. Uh, when the timing is wrong, God says slow. And when we are wrong, God says grow. But when all three are together and right, God says go. Okay? I know you didn't have that in your notes. I've had a lot of people after the service say, would you say that one more time? <laughs> let, me see, let me repeat it if you're writing it down. Okay? When your request is wrong, God says no. When the timing is wrong, God says slow. When you're wrong, in other words, when, when you're not in the right place and he wants to shape you or form you, God says grow. And when all three are together, then God says go. And as Christ came to this garden and he was revealing, uh, you know, even to his disciples that now's the time, he walks out of that with a strength and a resolve that I think was a result of prayer. And this is the application I wanted to pass on to you. That a lot of times in our prayer life, you know, we're praying to God and asking him to alter circumstances. More often than not, God is there to give you strength for the difficulty that you're facing rather than to alter the circumstances. And it goes through that time uh, of alignment of our heart in, into his that he's going to give you what you need to walk through the difficulty. More often than not, he does not deliver us from the difficulties, but he is with us in the midst of those difficulties. Some of you are there today, and you need that strength of what God wants to give you because it's through those very difficulties that God is going to grow you up. That's how you're gonna mature. That's how you're gonna get stronger in your faith and, 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 and get to the place where he ultimately is leading us. I always go back to the Apostle Paul. It's one of the great illustrations when he prayed to God, remove this thorn in the flesh, take it away, right? But God, ultimately after the third time he asked that, God says, I'm not gonna take it away. I'm actually gonna use that very thing in your life 
to help you to remain usable and to have a humble heart because you'd have this lofty vision over here that for a lot of people, the pride would have kicked in and would have wiped you out. But I'm gonna leave that thorn in the flesh in place so that you can understand that it is through your weaknesses that my strength is made perfect. That's an example of not altering the circumstance but strengthening him in the midst of it. Does that make sense? It's pretty clear, even as he experienced that. This is what was happening in the garden. Well, he gets up from there, and he tells his disciples, come on, let's go. I can even hear the soldiers. They're, they're here. And then that's just the second place we're gonna go to, and this is Caiaphas's house, all right? Caiaphas is the high priest, and, and his house, I'm gonna identify this, this place as a place of pretending. It's a place of pretending. And it all starts off when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus. And who's leading the charge? It's Judas. And when he betrays Jesus, he is pretending to be a friend of Jesus. How does he betray him? With a kiss, like a friend would. But that's not, that's not what's in his heart. He's pretending. He's a betrayer, and he knows it. And, and the lesson that, that we, we see is, you know, Judas, it, he's just an, an anomaly because he was with them, he was, he was right there, through the, he saw the miracles and everything else. How could he do that, you might think? Well, watch as things unfold. The very ones that thought that they would never do that are the very ones that in the moment of weakness, they slip into this, this pretension and it happens even more as we walk up the hill, as we go from the place of Gethsemane back over through the valley uh, of Kidron, you're gonna go back up through the lower city. There's steps that will lead, if you see bottom left-hand corner of Caiaphas's house, there are steps there today that they've uncovered that would have been the steps that Jesus would have walked up to that very house on the outskirts. And there's kind of a courtyard there. And we're told that in that courtyard, it was Peter uh, who were amongst the folks and they begin to, to recognize him. And they said, wow, aren't you, aren't you one of those guys? Weren't you one of his disciples? He says, no, I'm not. And somebody tests him again, and he says, no, absolutely not. And then it says, if you're looking at your note in chapter 2259, after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man was with him, for he too is a Galilean. They must have recognized the, the dialect. It's like recognizing somebody from South Alabama or something. You know, you can just kind of tell they're from a different part of the country, right? Because of their dialect. Galileans had something distinct about their voice. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. So, um, this place, Caiaphas's house, today when you go there, there is a church, and it is called the Church of St. Peter Galaganto, and that means the rooster crows. <laughs> and that's, that's where this happened, is right on the outskirts. This is Caiaphas's house. Je or, or Peter was pretending not to be a follower of Jesus. You see the difference of Judas? Judas, Judas was pretending to be a friend. Peter was pretending not to know him but they're both the same, aren't they? They're both, they're both not, not truth. But I think, the, I think the worst case was what happened on in the inside of Caiaphas's house. Caiaphas was a high priest. Really the guy, the power broker behind it all was Ananias. 
He was the former high priest. And now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was in that role. It's the highest uh, kind of political position within Judaism, okay? And in fact, five subsequent high priests came from Ananias. He was kind of the one that, that called the shots. But there at Caiaphas' house, it's a, large, it's a large house because it would also have the, the Sanhedrin would gather there. There was upwards of 70 of the elders that would gather. They were kind of like the Supreme Court, if you will. And, and they had gathered in the night. And as I think about the pretension that took place there in general of these religious leaders, but particularly Caiaphas pretending to be faithful to God. If you guys have been with us these past weeks through this series, you know, I, ho- I hope you've seen things through the, the approach that we've taken by looking at some kind of a broad brush of the Gospels, but in chronological order. And I've tried to lift some of these things out, but some of you will recall over the weeks, we have seen how these religious leaders, these same religious leaders try to trip up Jesus, right? They're always trying to catch him so that they can make accusations and get rid of him. And of the things that they did, they were always looking for areas in which he broke the rules. And I say it that way because it was their rules that they came up with that he was breaking. Not necessarily the Ten Commandments or the laws of God, but they had taken those Ten Commandments and expanded them into eight or nine hundred rules. And they made it about obeying those rules. So, for example, when the disciples didn't wash their hands the way that they do before a meal, what are those guys doing, man? You're a rule breaker. Or when he healed a person on, on the Sabbath day, they could care less whether this guy had never walked before or they'd never seen before. All that mattered to them is he broke one of our rules, right? And, and you see this time and time again. Interestingly, now, fast forward, we're in the Sanhedrin and they, they themselves are breaking their own rules time and time and time again. How could they do that? Friends, this is a glimpse into the human heart. Every one of us that think, oh man, we got it together, or we look down our nose at somebody else and think, oh, well, they need to get their act together. This is why Jesus said, don't try to take the speck out of your brother's eye because you got a log in your own, you know what I'm saying? And so these guys that were so religious and so pious, you know, I mean, the way they arrested Jesus was breaking one of the rules. They weren't supposed to do a capital crime arrest in the night. So they got it right there in their law. You go over and they assembled the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night. That was a, a broken rule. They called out false witnesses, and they knew they were false. They knew they were liars. They couldn't even get their stories right. But these guys put up with that because they were so intent on bringing Jesus to an end. It's amazing. They made accusations that they knew were not true. They'd say things like, well, he told us we're not supposed to pay taxes. Is that what he said? No, he said, give me a coin. Whose picture's on the coin? They said Caesar. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what is God's. But they would twist it just to get him. Broke their own rules. Finally, they manipulated a guilty verdict. Uh, but probably what took the cake was when, when Caiaphas, the high priest, stands up in front. He asks him point blank, you know, are you the Messiah? And Jesus basically says, you said, you said so. And he, and he says, there it is. Why do we need to hear anything else? Blasphemy. And he tore his robes. 
Now I didn't know this. I found out something, that's why I preached three sermons. I find out thing every sermon, somebody will remind me of something. They said, did you know that that was one of the rules that he broke? Leviticus 21 said the high priest was never to tear his clothes. And yet right there in front he does this out of sheer, and the word we use is hypocrisy. This is hypocrisy at the worst. And guys, I tell you, there is nothing that destroys the testimony of God's people or his church more than hypocrisy. Would you agree? You've had the conversations. You've heard your friends. You've heard your folks that are maybe on the outskirts, and, and they, when, when the subject comes up, one of their first charges is, oh, well, the church is just filled with hypocrites. And I hate to say it, but in, in many cases, they're right. They've seen it. They've watched what you say maybe at one place or what you claim over here, but they watch that life as it plays out and, the, and it just doesn't match up. And I'll tell you, nothing's more damaging to the claims of Christ than, than that lack of continuity between what we are on the outside and what we say we are on the outside and what is true on the inside. It's, it's called integrity integrity. And we watch this, and, and what a display of pretension that we see there. And I, my challenge is, when we pray and when we talk to the Lord, we, we need to consistently be on our guard, but we need to pray for a heart of authenticity. That's what the world's looking for. And I got to tell you, my observation is today, the younger our folks are, in particular, this is something they can sniff out in a moment. And, and, and they're, we're yearning. I think the whole world is yearning for something that is real, but they're going to test it. And if they see any hint of that kind of pretension or hypocrisy, I tell you, they're, gonna, they're just going to distance themselves as much as possible. None of us are perfect, friends. We understand that. You know, I, I'm amazed at the Apostle Paul when he said, watch me, imitate me, follow the Lord like I follow the Lord. I think, wow, who has the courage and the boldness to say that? And yet, and yet there's a way of walking, I think, with the Lord that's consistent enough to be real, to know, yeah, we're going to stumble. We're going we're to have moments that we, we regret and think, but all in all, we know that our heart is pure and that we're going to follow the Lord with that kind of um, intentionality, that we're going to do what he tells us to do. And we know that folks are watching. We need to be the same on the outside as we are on the inside and, and vice versa. So... They, they put on this big show in this, in this deal, and they finally come to the conclusion. And they, uh, they commit him uh, to, to be executed, but they can't do it. They can't do it according to their own laws. They have to get the permission from the Roman governor. So that's our next stop, is to go to Pontius Pilate, the procurator of uh, the Roman uh, you know, garrison that was there. And for there, we go up to the north, just north of the Temple Mount, to the Antonio Fortress, uh, they would not have gone into it because he was Gentile. They were Gentile, and the Jews w would not go there. And they were smart enough to know they could not make religious uh, claims or accusations against Jesus. Otherwise, Pilate would have just said, well, you guys handle it then. Don't bother me. Don't bug me with this, right? So they, they took a turn to where they, they took more of a political angle. Uh, Jesus is the one that is upsetting the whole nation, He's causing riots uh, because of the things that he's saying. 
these accusations, these are the Jews' accusations, and, and, and the political system, they're saying he's misleading the nation. Going back to what we said earlier, he's forbidding people, he says, to pay taxes to Caesar. That would have been a hot button. But this was the biggie. He claims to be a king, and there is no other king except Caesar, that these Jews would say. They knew that was going to be something that he could not uh, uh, just pass off, that Pilate would have to do something about that. So here's what happens. He, uh, he, he listens to the accusations, and now he pulls Jesus into the back room, kind of the inner court, and he interrogates him or, or interviews him personally. And as he's looking at Jesus, just put yourself in Pilate's position. This guy's supposed to be somebody worthy of death, execution, and the kind of people that he sees on a regular basis, you could probably visually spot them as being bad dudes, right? And he's looking at Jesus, and he's trying to measure up against that, that standard, and he says, well, okay, so are you a king? And then Jesus said what we mentioned earlier. He said, Did, do you say that, or are you saying that because these other guys out here are saying that? And he says, but it is for that reason I came. He'd say things like, this is not my kingdom. My kingdom is here at a different place. It's beyond. Otherwise, my people would fight for me. And very calmly. In fact, there's a section that Matthew records that these accusations uh, that, that uh, Pilate was peppering at him came and Jesus didn't respond to him. It said he made no reply to the great amazement of the governor. Most people would defend themselves. Most people would be you know, demanding their rights and screaming and yelling and saying, I don't deserve this, right? Jesus didn't do that. Nothing added up. And on top of that, I think there were at least two things going on in Pilate's mind. I think he was beginning to detect this person is different. And I think he was fearful of the wrath of God. I really do. Even as a Roman pagan, I think there was enough in him that he knew this person, this person is different. And the second thing is, his wife had a dream. And he was mulling over what she said. She said, stay away from him. I've had a dream about him. You, you don't need to, to be involved there. And there's a good principle there, by the way, guys. Listen to your wife. <laughs> Listen to your wife. It was stirring there. I told last group, I said, I saw this little cartoon pastor, and he, and he was speaking to his wife, and he said, uh, he said, you know, I think my sermons would be more effective if you would say amen every once in a while instead of, huh? You know? <laughs> I, last service, I looked down at Ness and I said, I'm really grateful I got a wife that doesn't do that, at least not in a service. Um, he, he's mulling this over, and so he concludes he says, I don't, I don't want to deal with this. And this is the point. This is the point of indecision that we see begin to uh, permeate Pilate at this time. It was a place of indecision. He's trying everything he can do to get out of this. He tries dismissing it. Remember, he, he takes him out in front of the whole crowd, and he says, I don't find anything wrong with him. Well, they don't accept that. And they press him, and they said, no, he needs to be crucified. That's what we want. And the crowd clamored for that, so he's pressured, okay? He tries, he tries amnesty. 
Uh, Barabbas was a, a bad dude. I mean, he was a genuinely bad dude. And he knew, okay, here's the answer. I'll offer him this, this really notorious guy, a murderer, right? And, and I'll put Jesus in him. But they demanded Barabbas be released instead of Jesus. That's how, how bent they are were to, 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 to have him executed. That didn't work. And then, then he thought he would just appease them by putting him through a Roman flogging. So it said from there they took him and they, friends, this wasn't just a, a whip. This was something that had bone and claws and things like that, literally designed to rip the flesh off your back. Josephus, a historian, recorded that a lot of folks didn't even survive that. And Jesus endured that. And now he, he once again brings him out in front of the crowd, bloody and beaten, literally beaten, as they did, brutally beaten. And they're thinking that should satisfy them, that should appease them, but that didn't work. He tried handing it off to Herod and have Herod take care of it, and Herod didn't do any good and sent him back. I mean, he was doing everything he could. And then finally he brings a bowl in front of everybody and he washes his hands. He says, well, I don't want anything to do with this. You think that got him off the hook? This was a man of indecision. And here's the point that I want us to, 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 to just really grasp today. Indecision, not making the decision, is a decision. That is a decision. And for folks who we talk to about the things of God and about Jesus Christ, who is Jesus Christ to you? And folks got all kinds of things they'll come up with and excuses and questions and all the things that we put up in place to try to preclude making a decision about whether we will believe him as the son of God, the son of the living God, who we will stand before someday and give an accounting that to say, oh, I'll deal with it tomorrow. If you read the book of Acts, it's interesting because Paul was in front of a king, King Agrippa, and he made a great case and shared the gospel, and, and it looked like, oh man, he said, you almost had me convinced, but you come back again, we'll talk to you later about that. That's indecision, and friends, I'm gonna tell it like it is. If you die in that condition, you stand before the Lord, your contemplation back here means nothing. You gotta come to a place where your faith has been put into him and you believe. You take the plunge, you take the step of faith to say you are the son of God and I believe that you are the Christ and that you have come to forgive me of my sins and I'm putting my trust in you today. Indecision is no decision. And I think Pilate falls into that. So he, he hands him over to be crucified and that takes us to our final place today and that's Golgotha. Golgotha at the time of Jesus would have been just right outside of the city gate. Um, the path from Antonio Fortress uh, through the city was called the Via Della Rosa. It's still there today. It's marked that way. The places where he would have stopped along the way. The hill would have been out there and Golgotha simply means in Latin the place of a skull. We don't really know why it was called that. It may have looked like that. Uh, I know there's another location on the north side on the road to Damascus that literally does look like a skull. It's got like eyes and a nose. And I mean, you look at it and it's, it, it doesn't take a lot of imagination. I, I, I don't think the place is so important as what happened at that place. Our Lord was driven through the city carrying his own cross as far as he could. He broke down because of the blood loss and everything due to the, the flogging that he experienced and Simon the Cyrene carried it the rest of the way. Golgotha was a place obviously of suffering. And I, I, uh, I, I'm pretty sure that most of you are aware that crucifixion 
was perhaps the most cruel form of execution that man's ever come up with. Everything about it was designed to create searing pain uh, that lasted. When you put nails through his wrists to hold him on the tree and then propped him up and, and bend him just enough to where his, both of his feet were held by one, one uh, spike going through them, that every breath he took, he would have to put weight upon the, the feet and on, on that, those, those ligaments, and they caused just this pain unimaginable. Every breath. And that's that were crucified died of asphyxiation. They couldn't stand it any longer, or they, they, they just ran out of uh, energy enough to lift themselves up to take a breath. That's what he endured. And other things happened there. Supernatural things happened at Golgotha. We read about the sky being darkened for three hours. I mean, dark, dark to the point where a centurion, a pagan Roman centurion said, wow, this, this really was the Son of God. I mean, they were frightful. An earthquake shook, literally. Um, the, the, we sang about it a little while ago. The veil within the temple was torn so that now this symbolized an access to the Holy of Holies on the part of all of us. This is what we were just singing about in our worship. A way has been made for us now to God because of what Jesus Christ was doing right there on that cross. And it wasn't enough. The grave started opening up and dead people started walking around. Now they were alive, but well, that would get your attention, right? All these things were happening, but ultimately today where we land is, is it was the place of sacrifice. It was a sacrifice. There's a section, if you got your note handy in front of you, there was a comment that somebody made as they're observing Jesus up on this cross. And they said, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Have you ever thought about that phrase? The way is that we as humans think and the way we approach crosses, we're thinking if you had the power if you really had the power, you would do everything or anything you could do to get away from that cross. Now, doesn't that sound interesting in light of Jesus telling us just a couple of weeks ago, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. That, that didn't seem to, to fit. He says, deny yourself if you want to be my disciple. Here he is on the cross. They're thinking, the only reasonable thing is, is that if you had the power, you would come off of that cross. So here's my question today. What kept Jesus on the cross? Why did he stay on the cross and not come off of it? The first word that comes to my mind is the word love. It was love. Someone once said, nails don't hold God to a tree, but love does. Those nails didn't hold him on there. It was love for you and for me. It was prophetic. Hundreds of years earlier, it was written that this is how he would die. Very specific. Read the Psalms. Even the words that he said about the thirst and the forsaken of God and all the things that happened there, it's all recorded there hundreds of years before it happened. But here's the bottom line. He stayed on that cross so that you and I could experience the forgiveness of our sins. And we have all sinned 
and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not a one who was born a believer or a follower or a child of God. You're not born that way. You're born separate. And that's why it says the wages of that sin is death, which means a separation from God. And the only thing that can mend that situation to bring us back together with him is what Jesus was doing right there on the cross by paying the price tag, shedding his own blood you know, for our sake. That's why this all happened. What a moment. What a moment. And today, as you just contemplate that, as you, just, as you live with that, let's just go back and review where we've gone the last 18 hours or so. We've gone over to Gethsemane. And, and, and spent time in prayer for the strengthening for what's ahead. Are you going through something today that you need the Lord just to give you his strength to endure? Maybe he's not going to change or alter your circumstance, but you need his strength to go through it. Has he called something out in your life that is inconsistent, that's incongruent with what you know that he's calling you to be and who, who to be, but you know that the reality over here isn't matching up? And maybe today he's challenging you. Bring those together. Confess it. Come into the light with it. Don't be pretentious. Don't lie about it. Don't hide it. Don't try to be something that you're not. Friends, that's a hard, hard game to play. Today, come together and, 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 and allow that light to just permeate the truth about who we are in the light of the Lord. He knows. He certainly knows. Is there a decision that he's calling you to make that you've been putting off? Is today that day to make a decision for the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you trusted him for the sacrifice that he paid, that only he could pay? Have you really, truly put your trust in what, what he has done? Today might be that very day. I want to guide you through a prayer to that end. I'm going to invite you to stand with me, and we're going to uh, conclude and just bring these things to the Lord and ask him, ask him to hear our prayer, hear our cry, and... Um, and I hope today he discovers a heart that is pure, that is true, that is honest with yourself, but honest with him about where we're at. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, uh, again for your word and for the truth it represents. You really are the truth. That question that Pilate asks, a lot of people ask, what is, what is truth? Where do we find the truth? And I think we've seen very clearly today, you are the truth. You are the life, and you are the way to the Father. Lord, there's so many things uh, today that, that we want to just come before you and open our heart and, and have your light shine within us. The things that you're, you're speaking to us about, we, we want to come into alignment and agreement with you. But Lord, I, I believe that the most important thing is for the brother or sister that may have come here today, you've drawn them to this place, and they're feeling that tug, that that Holy Spirit tug, that conviction that says, there's something I need to do. There's a step I need to take. And they might not even be sure what that looks like. But your word tells us that if we'll just cry out to you and trust you, that you will come and, and you'll respond. It was like a door that's being knocked on. And you said, if you'll, if you'll open that door, I'll come in and, uh, and I'll set up, set up my home in your heart. And there's someone in the room today that wants to take that step. It's a, it's a courageous step. It's a hard step for some. And the enemy's going to fight him as hard as he can. But if that's where you're at today, in your heart of hearts, 
you might just talk to the Lord and say, Lord Jesus, today I come and I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins. I'm so sorry for them. I'm inviting you to come into my life and to give me the power now to live a way that is pleasing to you. I trust you for your salvation that you're offering today. And I accept that. And I look forward to living for you the rest of my life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Father, I, I just pray for the assurance that the Spirit of God will come and dwell within the hearts of those folks. As your word says, they were, they were made a child of God, a true child of God, based on that profession of faith. And uh, look forward to the fruit that's going to result. We commit ourselves to you today. We worship you. We thank you for the cross and all that it means. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.